Friends, if you would turn in your copy of Scripture to Isaiah 11. Isaiah 11, we're going to be looking at the first 10 verses together, and that's on page 575 in the Pew Bible in front of you if you don't have your own copy of Scripture. I would invite you to turn there. Isaiah chapter 11, the first 10 verses. The uh, Advent, Advent season is a time of longing and a time of hope and a time of waiting, but it's not a time of inaction. A lot of times we can equate that waiting is just sitting in a waiting room and tapping your finger, waiting for the nurse to come and call you in so that you can go see the doctor. We, we oftentimes equate waiting with inaction. That is not the biblical concept of waiting. In fact, that's what the Thessalonians were doing and that's what Paul chastised them for. He says, don't keep looking up in the sky and trying to read the tea leaves or trying to read the newspaper and trying to figure out is Jesus coming back right now? He said, I surely tell you that Jesus is going to come back when you don't expect Him. Like a thief in the night. So stop looking around and you need to have your hearts prepared. You need to trim the wicks of your life, as Jesus said. You need to have the oil prepared in your lanterns because His coming is as sure as the sun. But you won't be ready. Or will you? And, and the call of Advent is every year for us to remind ourselves that we need to be about the work of preparing our lives for the coming of our King so that we aren't like, whoa, I, I wasn't ready for this. Let me, let me kind of clean up a few things before you get back, Jesus. No, this is the time for the cleaning up process. This is the time for the making the paths straight in our own lives through the power of the Spirit. That's what Advent is about. That's what Advent is about. And uh, I don't know if you've seen this or not, but the uh, lead singer for U2 named Bono, is that, is that way too old for most people? Like U2, y'all know who U2 is? <laughs> U2, the artist uh, known as Bono, I, I can't remember his full name, but he came out with a memoir. And Bono is primarily known about his activism. He started, uh, you know, the, the canceled debt campaign, the the World Against AIDS campaign, the Red campaign. He started all these things and he's primarily known as an activist. But both in his, in his song lyrics as well as in his way of being and his interviews and everything. In fact, there's a really great uh, interview with him in Christianity Today I'd encourage you to read. Um, but his, the title of his memoir, surprisingly, is called Surrender. You wouldn't think that somebody who was give, has given his life to activism would say on the back end of his life that it really is about surrender. You see, surrender and activism are not mutually exclusive. Let me say that again. Surrender and activism are not mutually exclusive. In fact, deep activism being an agent of good in the world, seeing injustice and bringing justice depends on surrender. Deep and true and lasting activism, if you want to make a difference in the world, depends upon surrender. And this kind of deep engagement with the world is what God had intended for His people from the beginning. But they gave into the human tendency of what Christoph Blumhardt calls a pervasive enslaving force. And what is that pervasive enslaving force that Blumhardt talks about? He calls it egoism. 
He says the pervading problem in our culture and in our own hearts is egoism. That is a protection that we have. In fact, he says, we ask questions like, what can we get out of this or that? This is what egoism is as he defines it. What can I get out of this or that? What will meet my momentary interest? When we are concerned with only our immediate interest and call this good and true, in this way, the darkness comes into our own hearts. And this is the predicament that Israel found itself in that Isaiah was preaching about through all the different kings that he was going to time and again, and particularly the king Hezekiah as Assyria was knocking on the door of Jerusalem and getting ready to take over Jerusalem. And if you want to read some pretty horrific accounts, you can go to some of the uh, history books of the Assyrian kings, particularly Sennacherib, who is the king at this time during uh, Isaiah 11. And you can see some horrific things happen. They were some of the most grotesque. They, they didn't just capture people in like Babylon who would try to assimilate them into their culture. The Assyrians would decimate a population. And I'm not going to go into all the details because that would, you, you would get images in your head. You're like, I can't focus on the rest of the sermon because that's pretty, pretty grotesque. Just suffice it to say, Assyria, no good. And they're knocking on the door of Jerusalem and Hezekiah is shaking. And he's like, they're coming and they're going to ruin me. They are going to embarrass me. Not only that, but they are going to just make me look like a fool and they are going to hurt me real bad. And so he is about ready to get destroyed in Jerusalem. And God had said from the beginning, He said that if you decide to walk your own path, I, like a good father, will discipline you to bring you back on the path of life. That's what a good dad does. He doesn't let his children just go on their merry way as though they know everything. But instead, he disciplines them and says, this is the path to life. Walk in this way. And he says, if you decide to go your own way, I will raise up kings who will destroy you, who will chop you down. And that's exactly what Assyria was doing. In fact, if you look at chapter 10, and we're not going to go there, but if you look at these series of 12 different cities that are mentioned here, it's basically a marching down to the city of Jerusalem, and that's where Assyria is set up camp. And they are sieging the city of Jerusalem. And if you want to read more throughout the, 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 the history of Israel, if you look at 2 Chronicles, uh, it, it's a great history lesson of the kings of Israel who did evil, did what was evil. That's, that's the refrain throughout the kings of Israel is that they did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And then the Lord brought judgment. And then a new king who, do, who did even more evil uh, the Lord brought judgment yet again to try to purify His people. And particularly, if you want to get really granular, you can go to 2 Chronicles chapters 32-36. through 36, and, and that's a great place to put that, that, that uh, narrative with Isaiah 11 to kind of get a feel. Because a lot of times it's like, oh, that really stinks. Hate to be Hezekiah. But if you, if you start to read uh, 2 Chronicles 32, you're like, oh my goodness. And slow down and read it, and you're like, wow, that's pretty horrific. And we don't really have a category for that, unfortunately, here in America, or, or fortunately, you can look at it both ways. But it's really hard for us to sympathize and empathize with what is happening right now in the history of Israel in our passage. And Sennacherib, famously, in chapter 32, he's, he's saying, I am going to flay the skin off your back, Hezekiah, and I am going to put your head on post, and I'm going to do all these horrific things. Are you ready? 
You put your trust in the God of Israel, but I have decimated all of the other gods of all the other nations, and your God, Yahweh, is not going to do any different. I'm going to come and destroy you. But out of desperation, what does Hezekiah do? Hezekiah prays fervently. He says, oh God, please help us. Because we can't destroy Assyria, which is true. And God miraculously delivers them from a grotesque end. It says over, you know, hundred, almost a couple hundred thousand Assyrian troops were, were, were destroyed overnight. But even so, King Hezekiah was like a caged bird, and he had to pay tribute uh, to Sennacherib, the Assyrian king, so that Sennacherib wouldn't destroy him, right? So he pays him gold and silver and all these things on the annual on an annual basis so that Sennacherib won't destroy him. And I think as I've as I was preparing for the sermon and even as I was reflecting on the kings of Israel, if I'm honest, I see a picture of me in the kings of Israel. And maybe you do too. I trust God, but there are many Monday mornings and many Friday nights where I waver in that trust. I want to follow the paths of God, but I also want to do what I want to do, when I want to do it, how I want to do it. I can talk a good game, and I can build up a lot of flowery language about trusting God, and yet at the same time, I'm not trusting Him. Do you ever find yourself in that same boat, friend, where you... Believe God in your life. You're like the centurion who says, Lord, I believe you, but help my unbelief. And you say, I know I shouldn't be thinking this, but I am. I know I shouldn't be wanting this, but I am. I know I shouldn't be looking at that, but I am. And you find that your faith is really, really weak. And you're like Hezekiah, and you feel like, man, I, I feel like I'm a servant of God, and yet I also feel like a rebel. And I wonder how God could ever look kindly upon me. And I would venture to say that at root of all of this is my lack of surrender to God's ways. A.W. Tozer wrote this. He said, the reason why many are still troubled, still seeking, still making little forward progress in their lives is because they haven't yet come to the end of themselves. We are still trying to give orders and interfering with God's work within us. That is the heart of the problem. Is that we haven't come to a true end of ourselves. And then as another author, Khalil Gibran says, he says, our anxiety does not come from thinking about the future. Our anxiety comes from wanting to control the future. Let me say it again. Our anxieties and our fears in life don't come from us thinking about the future, but it comes from you and me wanting to control the future, wanting it to look a certain way and for me to be in control of how it happens. That's where our anxiety comes from. That's where our fears come from. So the primary way you and I are called to follow Jesus is to come to the end of ourselves and our striving and to embrace God. To embrace God and His ways. That is the solution, is to say, I, I'm done. I'm done trying to clean it all up. Lord, will you have mercy on me? Like Hezekiah, say, Lord, I can't destroy Assyria. Will you please, on my behalf, destroy them? 
It's easy to see how we've tried and tried to do the right thing, and, and that's a good inclination to have. But lasting freedom comes when we also embrace our tendency toward fighting against God and His ways and trying to control our futures. Even one of the most wicked kings, Manasseh, the Lord had mercy on him. Manasseh, he was used as kind of the, the ultimate example of no king had ever done as evil as Manasseh. And you can even look at your own heart and say, man, wicked, wicked man or woman that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And you're in good company because even on King Manasseh, one of the most wicked kings of all, this is what we read in 2 Chronicles chapter 33. He says, And when Manasseh was in distress, he entreated the favor of the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. He prayed to him, and God was moved by his entreaty and heard his plea and brought him again to Jerusalem into his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. You see, friends, Forgiveness and the righteous branch that we are longing for depends upon the work of another. Depends upon the promises of God. Not on your way of machinizing and thinking through. This is how things ought to work. If I'm faithful, if I read my Bible, if I pray, if I do all these things, then this output should happen. That's not the way the Christian life is supposed to operate. It's not all about inputs and outputs. It, there's, there's a whole other category. I, I hope that many of you were able to attend the Spiritual Disciplines Adult Discipleship class but because that does help. <laughs> that does help to, to find your path and to say, I'm going to be about the work of reading my Bible, all those things. But a lot of times we take those spiritual disciplines and then we say, if I do this, then God owes me this. That's not the way it ought to be because our salvation indeed, our sanctification depends upon a promised one, God's way of doing God's things. And so I just have two points in today's passage that I want to highlight, first of all, the truly righteous person. If you're taking notes, the two points are the truly righteous person and then the promise of reversal. The truly righteous person and then the promise, or the promise of reversal. So let's look at verse 1. From Isaiah chapter 11, we read this, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. So all hope had been lost. Israel had come to the end of itself finally, it seems. They had been chopped down by Assyria from, from top to bottom. And all that was left was a stump. A stump of a promise. But that's all that was needed was just a stump because God produces the growth. He causes a branch, and this is actually better translated a twig. A twig, a small little, you know, upstart little twig will grow from this decimated stump of Jesse. And that's what God has to do with each one of us. He has to cause us to come to the end of ourselves so that we can't boast of our righteousness, but wholly as a work of grace in our lives. So let me get really honest and ask you the question. How many times have you had to realize that you couldn't fix yourself? Have you come to that point yet? Or are you still thinking that, yeah, but, 
if I can do a little bit more, if I can try a little bit harder, then I can fix myself. Have you come to the end of yourself yet, Christian? That's the question we have to ask ourselves. Are you at the end of your rope truly? Or you think that, no, but I, I got something still left in the tank that I can give. And you start to try really, really hard to double down and triple down and quadruple down on your efforts and say, I'm going to get this sin under control. Again, there is so much to be said about, yes, get some accountability, get some, get some confession going on in your life, get some Bible reading and prayer. All those things are tools and are necessary in your life. But at the root of it all, at the bottom of it all, has to be a confidence in God's work in your life. There is work that needs to be done in our hearts. But it has to be coupled with surrender. True and lasting surrender to God's, to God's way. The story here is that Israel, like you and like me, needed to be locked down to the foundation of our own self-righteousness. And God had to do a work to transform the roots of Israel. And that's why He takes it all the way down to the ground. And yet He leaves a stump of His promise so that instead of growing crooked as Israel had done and as you and I do, we're like, I'm going to keep going my way and I'm going to keep, I'm going to keep doing this. Because I'm not dead yet and God's not angry with me because otherwise I'd be dead. Wouldn't He bring judgment? No, no. The Lord says, I'm going to cut you down so that you can grow straight. So that you can grow from the ground up, from the roots. I want to transform you. You know, uh, one of the things that we oftentimes hear, and we just heard not too long ago, but every election cycle, I, th I think is a little humorous. I'm not a, a real big political person, uh, quite honestly. I have my, my, my inclinations, but I don't spend a whole lot of time on politics, but I think it's fascinating that every single election in the news cycle is saying, this is the most important election in the history of our country. You're like, well, the one back in 18, whatever, 1868 was pretty important. The one in 1910 was pretty important. The one, I don't know what, what, what elections were going on at that time, but I can promise you that every single election cycle is really, really important. And this is not the most important one. And we can get so tunnel vision that, no, no, this really is. Because, Matt, look at all the things that are going on. Yes, I see all the things that are going on. Civil war is pretty bad, though. Right? Slavery in, in, uh, in warehouses and in industrial complexes is pretty bad. We're talking about the 1920s and 1930s. Those are all pretty bad, too. All of that. We are in a world at war with God because you and I, truly, honestly, if we had enough power and enough influence, we might start to skew a little bit of the laws our way too. We might try to say, yeah, but if I can just do this, then I can get a little bit richer. Our politicians are not always on our side. And, and this is the kind of feeling a lot of times when we vote for somewhere like, I thought they were going to... I thought they were going to set it all right. I thought they were going to do the right thing. And I would say there are many who do, who are trying to do the right thing, but there are many who aren't. And a lot of times there's a little bit of buyer's remorse after the election cycle, isn't there? You're like, I thought that was the one. Man, I thought that was the one that was going to fix it all. And that's the same feeling that I want you to feel 
as Israel was having, as they were looking at all their kings, they were like, man, is this going to be the king? Maybe Manasseh is going to bring it. You know, maybe, maybe Josiah. Oh, wow, there, there are these great moments where, where Israel's like, yes, this is happening, and yet they fail. And they fail time and time again. And this is the same story, and this is even what we heard in our, conf- in our assurance of the gospel, is that even David himself, who was like the high point of, of kingship in Israel, that was the high point. Even Solomon, right? He, he, was, he fell pretty fast. And all of these kings were trying really hard to bring this righteousness and this goodness and this wealth of the nations into the, into the storehouses of Jerusalem, and yet each one and every one of them fell. And so the Lord promises to raise up a twig from the stump of Jesse, who is the father of David, right? And he says, I will bring someone who will be a righteous oak. This twig that looks insignificant will be a tree under which all the nations will find their rest under his branches. And so we see several characteristics from verse 1 of this righteous person. We see, first of all, that the Spirit of God rests upon him in perpetuity. Look at verse 2. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And so, rather than the kings of Israel who would for a time have the Spirit of God rest on them to do mighty works, we read that at the baptism of Jesus, that the Spirit of God and comes, and this is really important language in the New Testament, that the Spirit of God comes and rests upon Jesus at his baptism. I mean, he doesn't fly away. But that he is there in perpetuity. And then secondly, not only the Spirit of God rests upon him, but he, the righteous uh, branch, will judge impartially. The righteous branch will judge impartially. Look at verse 3. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. If we drill down deep into our justice system, we'll see that it's not as pristine as we would like to imagine There's posturing and there's partiality against the poor and there's an assumption of guilt before innocence. Social media can cancel someone just through one wrong tweet. Grace and mercy and true goodness seem to elude our culture and yet we see that this righteous one will bring the righteousness that we long for, the goodness and the beauty that we long for. This righteous branch will provide the healing that you are wanting and you're like, oh, not another one who's getting judged before he even gets to utter another word. But then thirdly about this righteous person, we see that his reign is secure and sure. Verse 5. His reign is secure and sure. Verse 5. He says, righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. And this is the same phrasing about God Himself where we read in Deuteronomy 32. He says, God the rock is perfect. For all His ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity. Righteous and upright is He. My friend, if you are looking for happiness in your life, if you're looking for true and lasting happiness, hopefully everybody's ears perked up, the answer is to delight and exalt the works of God. 
is to look at someone outside of yourself that your true happiness, just like John the Baptist, that he says, he must increase and I must decrease. Do you think John the Baptist was any less happy? No, he was actually even happier because he said, no, no, I'm here as a servant of him. And so much of our lives, the egoism that I talked about a moment ago, this striving that we have in our families and in our, with our coworkers, with our neighbors, even in our own hearts, this striving is a result of me trying to bolster me. Making sure that that person recognizes and notices me. Making sure that that person respects me and loves me and cares for me. And it's all self-referential and the Lord wants to free you and me so that we can actually get ourselves underneath Him and look at Him and say, that's my God who saved me, who lives righteously, not me. Because the more we try to get people to notice us, the more frustrated we're going to be. The more we try to get people to bow to our wills, the more frustrated we're going to be. The more anxious, the more fearful, the more angry we're going to be. When we feel like, I've got to have it this way because this is the way I want it. The Lord says, I want to free you from that. And the way to free you from that is to look at this one outside of yourself. Say, behold the works of the Lord. Mighty is He. Righteous altogether. Faithful and true is He. Not me. If you look to me and if you look to yourself and if you look to anybody else other than Him, you're going to be disappointed. And that's the way it should always be because He is the one who created us and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in Him. But then secondly, we see the, not only the righteous person, but the promise of reversal. In verses 6 through 10. I'm going to read that whole paragraph together. So, this righteous person, this shoot from the stump of Jesse, shows up and he's, he's a sprout and it looks very hopeless, right? But he, he grows. And as he grows and as his works are magnified, we see that these result. Verse 6 The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat. And the calf and the lion and the fatted calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. All the enmity between political parties will one day come to an end. All the strivings will cease. The arguments around our dinner tables that may be fresh in your mind, those will be done. The fighting over where to eat for dinner this afternoon, that will be finished. The inner turmoil of whether you're good enough or too bad. The ghosting of friends, the seeking our security in others, the keeping up with our neighbors and wondering if they notice how we've got our stuff together. All these will be miraculously reconciled Heaven is brought to earth as there is one rule and one king. The promise we look forward to doesn't end in our agenda. 
but in taking part in God's agenda. He said this is what's going to happen when King Jesus rules. The lion and the lamb and all of these horrible, all this enmity will be at an end. That's God's agenda. And if you and I will unclench how we want the future to go and let go of controlling the outcomes of our lives and simply opening our hands as recipients, we can experience the peace that God offers us every day. But you've got to stop demanding your way. In an effort to illustrate this, I couldn't think of a better example for this than Ebenezer Scrooge in The Christmas Carol. Ebenezer Scrooge is you know, famously one who is constantly counting his money and constantly has his fists clenched around his money and doesn't want to let go of even a cent because what about tomorrow? What if I need it tomorrow? But the moment of true conversion, at least the way I've read it, the moment of true conversion in Ebenezer Scrooge's life happens when he sees the future, right? He saw the past and he was really broken up about it. He saw the present and he's like, oh, that stinks. That's, that's really bad. But then he sees the future. And that's where the true conversion of his heart takes place is when he sees what might be. And he says, well, I don't want that to happen. I want to help bring about change. I don't want the evil to persist, but I want to, in the present, be an agent of change and of something good and beautiful in this world as opposed to just leaving it up to somebody else. And so when we do finally surrender to this good and perfect gift coming from, down from the Father of lights, we don't become a miser anymore. We don't get stingy with our lives and with our time and with our pocketbooks. We begin to experience the abundant life of the crucified King. As one uh, man named Eberhard Arnold has so beautifully written, he says, the miracle of God comes not only from above. It comes through us. It is also dwelling in us. The miracle of God has been given to every person and it lies in every soul as something divine. And it waits. It calls out to us. It waits for the hour when the soul shall open itself, having found its God and its home. And when this happens, the soul will not keep its wealth to itself, but will let it flow out into the world. Then shall the world be born in which Christmas is fulfilled as a reality. God wants to use you, dear Christian, to open up your life to share your wealth, your life with others, and to bring about this Christmas blessing. And in fact, to bring it full circle, you know, Tiny Tim is the, is the moment in which Ebenezer Scrooge says, that, that's what my life is supposed to be about. My life is supposed to be given for the life of Tiny Tim so that he won't struggle like that. And what do we hear about Tiny Tim? As his father Bob Cratchit relays, he says, Tiny Tim told me coming home that he hoped the people saw him in the church because he was a cripple. And it might be pleasant to them to remember upon Christmas Day who made lame beggars walk and blind men see. See, Tiny Tim wanted people to remember that their calling in life was that they follow one who let beggars walk and who helped open blind eyes, that their lives were meant to be more than just self-protection but we're meant to be opened up to the life of God that's in the world so that we, you and I can share it. And I, I fear that so many Christians in America, 
are fearful and are trying to just protect themselves from the next problem. Instead of living lives of courage and living lives of abundance, we are, oh man, if I could just get my stuff together. The Lord says you are living so small. If you would open up your lives, then you would stop worrying about struggling with that sin because then the sin becomes so much more minimized. Because then you realize that my life is meant to point to someone else and to glorify somebody else, and then you'd stop worrying and stop living such a boring life. See, Christ's return will be cataclysmic. There is no doubt about that. Christ will return with a trumpet blast from glory. And He will rule indefinitely forever and ever. Amen. But waiting isn't doing nothing. It's about being about that great work. Seeing the future and saying, I don't want that future. I want this future. And moving your life in such a way so that you would stop being slothful in your spiritual life. Stop being and waiting for someone else to, to take care of the bill. Christian, wake up. The light has dawned. And Christ in your heart is crying out for you to wake up and to stop playing small. And to play the game of life in such a way that Christ really did save you. So that you could be a blessing to other people and stop trying to just be about your kingdom and your sin management. But to be about a life that says, look to Jesus. And He can save you. How many neighbors do you have and do I have that need Jesus? This is not about guilt tripping. This is about opening our eyes to a greater reality. That your life is hid with, with Christ on high. And He wants to pull you towards that greater reality so that you give your life for the life of the nations because our Savior gave His life for the life of the nations. And we can see the future and we want to engage in it. And bring about that future instead of the future that we see. Yes, there needs to be activism. But there also needs to be surrender of our hearts and of our lives and of our futures to King Jesus. That's the call. That's the call, Christians, to stop playing church and to stop having all the right answers. Because half of them are wrong. And to be able to say, I want to lay down my life for others because that's what the Christian life is about. Is to follow Jesus. Not just talk about Him, but to follow Him through activism, through being engaged in the world and not cloistering off so that I can't wait till Jesus comes back and all that junk is taken away. No, He wants you to go into the junk of life and to bring about His reality. Let's pray.